This is Learning Innovation, the teaching and learning podcast, otherwise known as LittlePod. We are created by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation, located in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. Here at CTLI, it's our job to keep education innovative and accessible, which leads to lots of conversations and projects with students, educators and experts in our networks. We hope you'll tune in, hit play, and get inspired as we navigate and capture the dynamic landscape of teaching, learning, and pedagogy. Welcome to episode number 23 of The Little Pod. We have a couple of guests today. The first is Kirby England, an instructor in environmental sciences at Lethbridge College and a faculty advisor to the college's chapter of the Wildlife Society. Kirby also owns an environmental consulting company called Ubetula Environmental. Our second guest is Lowell Yellowhorn, Interim Manager of Indigenous Services at Lethbridge College. He is a Pakani Nation member, former elected official, and a cultural practitioner of the Blackfoot culture. Today we'll be talking about how braiding together Indigenous knowledge and Western science offers more holistic learning experiences that shape current programming and drive innovation in education. Welcome, Kirby and Lowell. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Donna. I'm so glad that you both could join us today. Um, So I understand that you're both involved in several very innovative initiatives at the college, one of those being indigenization of the environmental science program. Um, So what spurred this initiative? Um, Where did it begin? Sure. Well, I think our environmental science program by its very nature is a a very much a land-based science. And so we're we're out there looking at at a variety of topics from the living and the non-living and and sort of the the different cultural and scientific and and technical aspects of it. You know, I I think that uh, as as the college, of course, is, is... moving towards reconciliation. Um, one of the calls to action in reconciliation is, is, you know, Lowell could speak to this more than I could, but certainly the role that education will play in reconciliation. And, and I just sort of saw a natural fit, uh, pun intended, almost unnatural, between environmental science and this indigenization of content and the role that we as, you know, me speaking for myself, a Western environmental scientist, um, could play in sort of further enabling a scientific connection between environmental science and that indigenous content. And to be fair, it wasn't like I had this great idea. Um, a community member on the Pagani Nation where, where Lowell's from, um, named Harley Bastine, owns a, a company called Earthwalkers, and, and he also owns another Buffalo Rock teepee camp. And, and at that location, he hosted... Uh, a bit of a gathering of environmental scientists and students and instructors and academics and others. And the topic of the gathering was um, braiding Western and indigenous science and knowledge and traditional ecological knowledge. And as this often goes, and Lowell's seen this many times, and, and I grew up in a part of Alberta, you know, north of Edmonton, and we had a, a good number of Nahewak Cree people, and, and we, we got fortunate to spend lots of time with elders. My father was a game warden. My mother was a fish, uh, social worker. So lots of time in those communities. And, and I learned that when you give an elder the floor and you just let him open up and talk, throw your clock out the window, 
and you can't go like a 15 minutes and they'll wrap it up. It, it doesn't work like that. So at this seminar uh, that I had attended at, at Harley's place, they did just that. They have this, this wonderful elder, um, Maureen, I believe was her name. Uh, anyway, she, she starts the talk and the prayer and, and I went, Oh, okay. And then she starts telling stories and it was 15 minutes and then it was half an hour. Then it was 45 minutes. Then it was an hour and then it was an hour and a half. And, and she's kind of going on. And in the meantime, I see this fellow sort of creep in from the side and he's camouflaged up and he sort of materialized out of the cottonwoods. And I thought, this guy's interesting. And so I sort of eased my way out of, out of that talking circle and just said, Hey, you know, my name's Kirby. Nice to meet you. And he, you know, <clears throat> hello, I'm Harley. And this is my place here. And, and kind of told me about his background. And I realized like, Oh, this is a guy to talk to. And, and, you know, we pretty quickly struck up a friendship and I've, I've since gone out and helped, uh, you know, Harley and the, the pig and friends along the river do a fish rescue every year. Um, and so there's been sort of more opportunities to connect with that. And I've realized like, well, here's someone who very much took a lot of traditional ecological knowledge. This is Harley and, and applied it to Western science and had quite a career and inspired a lot in the community. And, and that's one example. And I thought, geez, you know, what if we could look at our curriculum and the courses I teach here and that my colleagues teach and, and we give more opportunities for indigenous students, especially, but, but even, um, you know, settler students, you know, uh, non-indigenous students to connect with that traditional ecological knowledge that comes from being on the land and hearing stories from elders passing down that knowledge about being on the land. And so, you know, you get an idea and you go, that's great. And then of course you go and, and who's going to help me get there. And I think Lowell at, at that point in time, and he can speak to this was more in a student support role, but enthusiastic. And, and so we've just sort of, he and I struck up more of a friendship and we talked about these possibilities and, and now it's really, really coming to fruition and that we've got the people and we've got, you know, a vision of how we'd like things to go. And we have elders and, and it's sort of, moving in a really good direction. That sounds really amazing. So Lowell, what was your connection? How, how did this all uh, come together for you? Well, you know, I, I'll start at the beginning for myself, you know, like, I mean, my upbringing and, and, and journey in life, you know, I was embedded in community. And so I, I was raised on the Pikani Nation my entire life. You know, I was born in Edmonton, but, you know, I relocated to the reserve, you know, throughout my formative years and, and, you know, I was ingrained and, and, and infused with, you know, the traditional teachings of my people my entire life. And so with that came my relationship with the land as well and, and the understanding of the natural environment and, and just picking up those, those subtle teachings of the land sustaining, you know, the Blackfoot people. And what it, it's that relationship that I built of, you know, utilizing the, the, the local resources in the territory, you know, the plants, the animals, you know, the water, that that really fueled my my passion for education, you know, the Western education. And, you know, funny thing is here is I'm an environmental scientist too, mm-hmm. by trade as well. Um, my, my, my post-secondary background is, you know, environmental science. And that's why me and Kirby have clicked so well. And, and that was why I to- chose the field of environmental sciences because, you know, indigenous culture is so closely aligned with the environment and the preservation of the environment is such a key aspect for, you know, indigenous culture. And as I progressed through my post-secondary, you know, I became 
more um, introduced to Blackfoot culture language and, and started to make that close tie of, uh, um, you know, my, my post-secondary background. So um, over the years, I've, I was exposed to a lot of different, um, I guess, uh, teachings and, and movements as well. You know, um, you know the, the Old Man River is a contentious issue um, for the Pikani people. And, and it just so happens, you know, Kirby brings up the, the Lethbridge Northern Irrigation District and, and, and that history behind um, the conflict of um, the installation of those um, 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 weir, the weir. The that, aqueduct that, and the weir. Yeah, yeah, the aqueduct and the weir. The, the Pikani loan fighters were um, protesting that, that installation because there was no benefit to the Pikani people. Um, the history behind that, you know, there's a whole history that, you know, the federal government came in, installed that facility without the compensation to the, the Pikani nation. And, um, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. It was a billion dollar industry in the eighties and continues to, to benefit, you know, the, the local farmers and, and, you know, that, that facility, you know, without, without its uh, installation, it wouldn't be feeding the, the irrigation network of Southern Alberta. So, you know, it was a critical, critical uh, historical point where, you know, the Pikani people went and um, protested and, and blockaded the water flowing into that irrigation district. And, and, you know, it was a big, you know, you know, what, what people think is, you know, a bunch of, you know, indigenous people, you know, um, blocking and, and blockading and, and you know it, it was a big issue at the time because you know there, there's shots fired on either side and and you know the military was involved the RCMP and and you know they were they were um, jailing people um, specifically um, you know one of the, the the individuals associated with that that protest was Milton born with a tooth and he was uh, you know quite the activist in, in the 80s when it came to water rights for the Pikani people. And, um, you know, that, that, those were types of things I was exposed to as a child. And, and, and it really formed my, um, um, you know, understanding of, of the environment and the importance it played. And then getting involved here at, at the college, you know, I was, I, I was in leadership. And, you know, I, the thought about it, you know, where, where would I have more impact? Would I have more impact in leadership? Um, but, or would taking this job on at Lethbridge College and, and, and I feel like the benefit for myself would, and my community was to come work in post-secondary environment so that people can, can find that um, same motivation in whatever career path they chose. But at least they would see somebody from community who was successful and, and doing well, and it would serve as an opportunity for post-secondary success for Indigenous students going into that path. And getting to work with um, Mr. Mr. England and Instructor England from Lethbridge College, you know, we we got hooked up and, and you know, we started talking and, and, and finding ways of um, um, building that content, that Indigenous content, and infusing those, those uh, Western and Indigenous ways together. So... It's been a very wonderful experience for myself. And I think Lowell brings up a good point there in that, you know, we haven't really talked about that part. I, of course, I knew his background in tribal leadership and that, and, and that 
you know, he saw an opportunity to influence more, more people. And, and I had a similar coming to it. So my side of the old man dam controversy is again, not in favor of that irrigation project by any means, but my main mentor is a guy named Lauren Fitch who formed this cows and fish program. And at the time of the old man dam installation, he was a fisheries biologist and he really specialized on native trout. And he made it very clear and he and his colleagues through some excellent data collection that the installation of this dam would fracture native trout migration routes and spawning routes. And we would see a decline in the population and a whole suite of environmental consequences as a result that the Pagani people knew and that Western science knew and that government knew. And yet for economic reasons, that dam went in and, and there was a suite of consequences. And, and what I think Lauren would let me say um, is that his name is on the plaque of individuals responsible for the installation of this great irrigation project. And he's always said, like, I wish it wasn't because it's, it's such a, they had all the science and all the evidence they needed to know that was going to be a number of ecological consequences. And then they did it anyway. And, and the protests, and then they did it anyway. And the benefits that were proposed weren't necessarily made available to the people that were most directly affected. And that's always bothered me. And so um, I, I was sort of motivated by Lauren and that knowledge. And I worked with the Cows and Fish program for another years, number of years, I should say. And we would go out and we'd sort of interact one-on-one -on -one with landowners or community groups and start spreading about, you know, awareness of riparian management and issues and those sorts of things. And yet... I always felt as I was doing that, like, oh, that was good. I talked to six people this month and I sort of brought them some awareness about these issues and I'm glad I could help. I wish I could talk to 60 more and really spend time with them and walk them through all of the pieces. And then this opportunity to teach came along and uh, first it started part time and just doing labs and very technical details. And then I was sort of given my own courses and told, well, change them in a way that you sort of see more fit that would benefit the students based on your perspective and, you know, still be within the course outcomes. We have to stick to our framework and universal design for learning and these sorts of things, but start including content that you see you're the subject matter expert. And, and so I saw a couple things and one was the threat to water and the importance of the, you know, aquatic world and some call it the non-living world. I mean, of course there's a, uh, an energy that goes along with, with, water and, and other things. So I, I don't know if non-living is the right phrase, but abiotic, right? If you will. Okay. Meaning non-living. And then there's the, the living world and the interactions there and starting very early on with these first year students and especially my ecology course, we could start to show them these connections. And then, you know, through getting to know Lowell and Harley and others, and, and even my own background, I've always been interested and sort of move to to better understand those who were there first and who have all that depth of knowledge. Um, you know, I, I was always a big believer in what we call tech in my field, and it's not technology, it's T-E-K, traditional ecological knowledge. So that body of information, sometimes, you know, centuries old, that's been passed down through oral tradition, through um, you know, the, the winter robe and, and all those sorts of things, you know, that the sharing of that information. And I thought, now, how do I take some of this and start building it into ecology courses and others so that it just feels like a natural fit that while we're learning about the environment, how could you not learn about the indigenous aspects of the environment? Because these people have such a history and in our part of the world, of course, that's Treaty 7 predominantly in the Nitsitapi peoples, right? The, the Blackfoot peoples. 
And so focusing on that um, and, and incorporating at first, it was just, you know, uh, a plant name or two or, or an animal name or two. And then I sort of thought students would, as they often or sometimes do say, we don't want to learn Latin, you know, when we're teaching them what I call scientific names, right? They're not Latin names. Half those words are Greek. Richardson was an explorer, not a, a Greek guy or a Latin guy. So Richardsonii is, is not a Latin name. It's a scientific name, right? And so I, I would sort of teach them and, and I still do this. And this is, I think, what's been some of my successes. You're already learning a language here that you didn't know when you came in. Abiotic might not have meant anything to you. Richardsonia, well, I mean, that's a person's name, but um, Xanthocephalus, orange-headed, right? Xanthocephalus, Xanthocephalus, the orange-headed cowbird. Six months ago or a year ago, that meant nothing to you. But now, you know, well, Xantho is yellow uh, and cephalus is head like a cephalopod. So, oh, I see. There's a new explanation of that word, right? And and I just thought, well, we already do that with scientific terms and it's so natural. Why don't we start doing it more with these indigenous names of things? And so I consulted with Lowell and, and Harley and, um, you know, Peter Weasel Moccasin, Minipuka and, and um, William Singer, the third, of course, Apisamaga and, and other knowledge keepers and said, I would like to introduce more of this content. So it feels for these students that it's natural to learn all the names of something. And, and there's this Confucius quote, and you'll hear lots of Confucius say quotes, right? And I'm careful about which ones I repeat. But Confucius says that the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names. And so when I'm learning about something, and especially when I'm teaching about something, I try really hard to call it by its proper name. The badger, the North American badger, Taxidia taxis. You know, it, it didn't have a name until someone showed up here and named it you know, a white scientist showed up and named it. Well, that's simply not true. Okay. And, and to say that it is, um, is, is just, uh, is just incorrect. And so I would ask, you know, those in the community, Lowell, this black and white thing that digs burrows, you know, what do we call that? Misinsinski. There you go. Okay. Misinsinski, the badger. And then I go, oh, well, that was easy. What else? These bison we no longer have here anymore. We would call those Ini. And if I had more than one, they would be? Iniwa. There you go. Okay. And is that a hard thing to teach somebody? No. It takes seconds. And and it adds just, I feel, a depth of knowledge to a subject area. And it shows, I feel, and, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am because there's study after study showing the value of two Indigenous learners hearing their own language in their classes. You know, it increases participation, it increases uptake of the material, commitment to the process. It's just useful. And, and it takes, I feel like, very little extra effort on the part of a scientist who already has dozens, if not thousands, or, or maybe more names floating around in your head. It's not a lot more to just add some of that additional context. And now, it can be harder getting at some of the information because, of course, we have textbooks and lists and other things. And maybe the names of some of these only exist in the minds of elders and language speakers. And, um, you know, I'm quote after quote here today, but but I have a student, she's Gwich'in from uh, in the Northwest Territories, and, and she had a presentation the other day. Um, shout out to Ashton, okay? Big shout out to Ashton. And in her presentation the other day, she she had this quote that when an elder dies, a library burns. When that elder dies and they have some of that cultural knowledge, you know, the names of things, the pattern, the history, all that, and it's not transferred anywhere, it's gone. And and it's just that strikes me as such a tragedy. And so as much as possible, I try and spend time with elders, 
maybe too much time, right? Maybe visiting and drinking coffee and snacking and telling jokes, but I'm doing important ecological research, right? And, and preservation of that information. Okay. Um, but you know, I try and spend that time and I try and get that information. And then I ask, you know, I, I teach these courses. I have these students, would you be comfortable if I shared some of this information and pass it on? And, you know, as, as of yet, I've only got, uh, one guy I know of, and he's a mutual friend of, of Lowell and I, that I, I let off with some, uh, Blackfoot and, and he said, that's not your language to speak. No, sorry. Sorry. Okay. And, and of course we were working on similar projects, looking at natural things. He was, you know, fencing off a band ranch and managing cattle. And I was looking at, you know, wetlands and wildlife and other things. And so we became friends and, you know, pretty, pretty quickly, this individual and I, I think would consider each other friends and, and the, the initial uh, confusion was soon forgotten. He realized that I think in my mind, I don't want to appropriate and I try really hard not to. And I, I try and come from a place of understanding and respect for a culture. And, and so I'm kind of getting long winded, but we've had good opportunities to, to basically provide the, the forum and, and just pass the microphone. We're out here on the land. Let's talk about a few organisms and their interactions with their environment, living and non-living. And let's consider, you know, an understanding of that that isn't just based on what we're seeing today in the Western worldview. You know, let's let's consider some of the deeper understanding that I think comes with learning from place and, and hearing from elders and others. I think you brought up a really good point, though, you know, in your discussion, and that was relationship building. Time, you know, is, is an important aspect that you brought up as well. Um, you, you know, you can't just go and, you know, take take information from somebody, you mm-hmm. know, that, that you know, it, it, it's, it's not good relationship building etiquette. Right. If you want to put it in a way, you know, phrase it in a, in a good way. Um, because, you know, I think... It's important, you know, there, there's there's the fundamentals of OCAP out there. So that's ownership, control, access, and protection. Essentially data sovereignty for Indigenous people. Right. You know, gone are the days where, you know, you, you venture into, you know, the Amazon and go interview and, and record, yeah. you know, all these Indigenous people and then take all their knowledge and they yeah. have no benefit. You know, they're living they're living in the forest and yeah. and, and, and not, you know. Not not enjoying any of the benefit of where that information goes, you know. You're, you know, the Blackfoot people have had relationships with the land, and 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 you know, we're not governed per se by you know laws written down on paper. You know, we're we're governed by natural law. So, I, uh, I you know, what the seasons are doing, what the what the what the animals are doing. So those are important relationships that you know blackwood people have had because and and you know the, the thing about it is they've sustained us you know mm-hmm. for 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 millennia you know where we you know the western aspect you know says you know we crossed the land bridge in in um you know alaska but and we we don't believe that you know we, we were we were you know created we have creation stories mm-hmm. you know so you know what? What? What doesn't validate our creation story? You know, what I, you know what I mean. So yeah. that, that those those types of things in relationships, you know, without getting too, uh, you know, animated about it. That's 
you know, used to hang out with activists. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and that's why you're here to, to rein me in. And, and I think Lowell and I having a good friendship, you know, if, if I was out to lunch on some point I'm trying to make up for some initiative I have, I would, I would really expect him to say like, Kerb, I, I need you to consider this. And at which point I go, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's some good insight. Why is it important to bring this culture and to, to, to braid Indigenous knowledge, why is that really essential in education? Going back, you know, almost, you know, going back, you know, over 100 years, you know, you know, you have with the residential schools, you know, that's a real tough spot in Canadian history, you know. So there's this, um, you know, there was almost an extinguishment of Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous languages. And so when you bring that into the, the equation, you know, there's, there was a, there's a responsibility there to, to make that attempt to try and restore and, 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 and reconcile that, that past and that history. And, you know, as a, as an institution, you know, Lethbridge College has, has recognized that importance of, you know, past histories and, and, and trying to preserve, you know, the, the, the local culture and, the, and, and, and help, build the capacity of the communities, you know, the the Gana, the Siksikai, the Bikani and Amskapi Bikani, those four tribes of the Blackfoot Confederacy, because, you know, we were we were heavily impacted. You know, there was a lot of residential schools, you know, we were subject to the permit system as well. Um, we couldn't leave the reservation without a permit or else, you know, getting we would get thrown in jail or um, other provisions that we required to survive held from us so you know because our, our our relationship with the land was broken as well you know there 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 was um we couldn't harvest the resources in the territory we couldn't hunt for ourselves we couldn't utilize you know like people think it was just so easy just to go and you know get get these resources but you know um you know i used this pandemic as an example um you know, look, people were had to live in isolation in their houses for two weeks with their families. And, you know, a lot of people's marriages didn't last through those two weeks, you know. And, you know, there's a record amount of divorces that happened because, you know, people had to live in isolation during that time. And you put that into the context of the reservation, you know, these, these are small land plots and, you know, you had hundreds of people living in these land plots. And, you know, sooner or later, you're not going to get along with your neighbor. And, and there's going to be these intergenerational um, um, conflicts that are, that are resol- uh, as a result of living in these and on the reservation. Um, you have the, diff- the dynamics of the churches as well, you know, um, the different dom- denominations coming into the communities trying to... Um, convert people into those religions like the Protestants, the Catholics, um, you know, the, the Baptist. The, 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 who built that stone beer can out there on the... Oh, uh, the Baha'i. Uh, yeah, the Baha'i faith. You know, there's all these different faiths coming in. But with that, they're bringing their conflicts from the holy country down, you know, from Bethlehem. Eh? Hey, and, you know, they're, they're also bringing that into the community and these people are fighting with each other because they don't get along with that church. That church doesn't get along with us. Um, and 
then, you know, they're calling the, the traditional people on the reserve, you know, the people that are practicing culture. Well, those are the heathen, those are the devil, you know. You know, so there's those types of things in relationships that are very intricate and, you know, they, they don't heal overnight. And mm-hmm. so we're trying to reconcile those differences, come together as a community, and, and as well save the language, the culture, because Blackfoot language is learned by, you know, um, continuously speaking and and it starts at the home into the and when when the children child goes into um into school they have to be hearing it and then when they go home at the end of the day the parents have to be speaking it to the child and so there those types of connections were broken you know the the parenting elements associated with um um the residential schools you know you pull parents away from their children, pull children away from their, their parents. They're not, they're both not learning those skills. That's, that's, those are critical relationships, critical life relationships. And, you know, when you put it into context, you know, the residential schools didn't happen, you know, just a long time ago. They're, you know, they're pretty recent in, in history, you know, like people as old as I am being put into residential schools. So that, those are, those are, you know, the, the tough the tough conversations that needed to need to be had, but you know with reconciliation and and the TRC, you know the Kirby had brought up. You know there's important recommendations that are being brought to the table here at the college. Um, they're being driven by good people, and and people are genuine of genuine nature are wanting to help, wanting to try find ways to to preserve you know cultural practices, cultural, you know, language as well, you know, and, and I mean, it put it into perspective, you know, if your child's learning, you know, in high school, when they're able to um, articulate different things and say they come home and they ask you, well, dad, you know, Kirby, you know, you work at the college. What did you do to save the Blackfoot language? And mm-hmm. then you can say, hey, I put it into my courses. I, uh, Donna can tell her, you know, her her children, grandchildren, and and the, her nieces, nephews, well, I, you know, I helped develop curriculum. You know, Ryan, I I, I preserved it through the media I, I, I put out and, and, and promoted it. So, you know, there's, makes you feel good at the end of the day mm-hmm. that you're able to do that kind of stuff because, one of the things with the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, they predicted that the Blackfoot language would would die out. And and a lot of the the stats out there is that speaking has fallen below nineteen percent of the people. Uh, well the entire uh, Blackfoot people out there, you know, only nineteen percent, less than nineteen percent of the com- uh, population speaks Blackfoot language. And that's pretty tough. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of, you know, dispute the facts because, you know, I, I speak it and we, we don't always account for those little conversations we speak, you know. Um, there's more Blackfoot being sp- spoken in the home, I believe, than people realize. But it's just that it's just become such a... Myself, you know, like, I, I look at my example. I've, I've been ingrained in my culture. My parents were culturally active and I was I've seen that a whole element and so there's a lot of things that I took for granted even in my job now I I don't realize I I know what I know because I you know I it this is new you know this is a new environment to me and it's being 
and but yet I, I'm starting to recognize like sharing those those and, and I can speak to that because Lowell and I like to walk together sometimes with a rifle and then we call it an armed <laughs> march you know look looking for wildlife and and I'll ask him you know what's this and he'll just it's there and he goes after like oh you don't realize like how many words you had until there's an occasion that they're called upon and then you can share them. Lowell can be reactivated. And when he's reactivated and can share that knowledge that he possesses, he's going to recruit others quickly because it's contagious how enthusiastic he is about that level of knowledge and that amount of information that he's carrying with him. And, you know, when, when I talk to Peter and, and I do that a decent amount, he says the the thing to understand about the Blackfoot language, Kirby, is that it's it's descriptive. And these words aren't so much about placing things within a context and others that English wastes all of this time on. We just get to describing the thing. And I I look at what I do as a scientist and especially an ecologist, and I'm very much trying to describe things. And so you realize, um, you know, I talk about a, there's a bird called a northern harrier. Okay, and a northern harrier is very identifiable. They've got this clear white band at the base of their tail where it meets their body. And so, you know, Lowell has in his office the France Dictionary of Blackfoot Grammar. And we were in there one time talking about looking up the names of birds and owls and, and you know, it, between Lowell and Peter and I, we sort of landed on, well, it's a, uh, it's a small eagle, basically, is what it would be. So, buksipita, um, right? Mm-hmm. The small, small bird of prey, right? And then I said, but, you know, let's go look at that grammar dictionary and see what what they have well sure enough white belt and i just thought like oh my goodness they're there like they've picked the most identifiable feature about that bird and just described it like that so i could say to you you know a northern harrier and you go i have no concept of what that looks like right i i don't know what you're talking about but then i say bird white belt and you see that thing fly by and you go yeah there it is okay i know just what you're referring to with no confusion well and that really speaks to the importance of language when there's a concept tied to it that doesn't exist yeah, elsewhere. without it. That's yeah. right. And so I just sort of saw a utility there that, you know, in, in the power of that language. And I'm like, oh, it's so much more useful to know it in that context. And, and as Lowell said, to embrace that knowledge that, you know, Western I don't know about science, uh, culture, um, tried to erase, actively tried to erase. And so the indigenization side of it, I guess, is I would sometimes see, especially in my classes, you know, that the indigenous students in the room are few and far between. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of the time, probably because there was so much distrust of, of education systems for very good reasons, as Lowell described, there wasn't as much pressure to send maybe, you know, culturally as many people off to university and others, because maybe there's still some distrust there, not an opportunity or barriers that were put in place by the system. And so when you did have those few students that were already, you know, overcome an incredible amount of barriers just to get there, often I noticed, geez, they weren't connecting with the content in the way I sort of expected or that I saw as like, this is natural science. I mean, we're, we're going to talk about all these things that I think are going to be really interesting. I know are really interesting to your culturally probably. And then that's sort of when I realized like, Oh, it's because I'm still one, I'm saying it. 
and that's not always appropriate. It shouldn't be me. It should come from an elder or someone else. It's not necessarily my information to share. But what I'm in charge of as an instructor is who's in the room and when. So I had an opportunity to start, you know, trying to talk to Lowell and he's done this, you know, with students that we've had in my classes and Lowell and I have done some work on some summer camp programming that the college offers, uh, ecosystem explorers. And so even, even those much younger children uh, that, that wouldn't necessarily have access to that sort of information in, in a single week heard about you know, the, the ecology and the, you know, the ornithology and the geology and, and also all of that traditional ecological knowledge and the cultural context of, of our place here on, on uh, Lethbridge College, Okotokaki, anyone, right? You know, there's, there's that sharing of that knowledge that I'm so grateful for. Lowell, you mentioned that the college is, is moving in a good direction and, and there is a lot of progress towards reconciliation. Um, and uh, Kirby, you mentioned, you know, some of the ways that you have em- embraced indigenization. If there are instructors and other educators listening, what advice would each of you give to them if they want to try to do this with with their course and the things that they're passionate about teaching, but maybe they don't know what to do? We're, we're very fortunate here as an institution that we have a walk-in Indigenous services department. And first and foremost, you know, you know, come, come down to the gathering place, you know, introduce yourself and, and you know, just let us know what, what, what the course material um, you have. All, all, the, all the career paths we have here at Lethbridge College, you know, Indigenous people have had that practice in the community and and you know we've 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 had our traditional policing you know we've had our ecology knowledge you know t- traditional ecology ecological knowledge we have you know we have our our, our kinship family uh, systems um, we have you know we had our trades you know so you know there was a role for everybody in the community and and you know when when we look at it you know we can apply. Our, our knowledge base is into you know, the classroom nowadays. And, and um, we had our traditional education system. So uh, we can provide that knowledge set for our, 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 our wonderful community of, of faculty. Um, you know, if you look on the Lesbridge College website, you know, we have a cultural support program. And... On there, there's an online request form, you know, for, for beginners, you know, for just, just to start off with, you know. So, you know, feel free to access that form, you know, it comes directly to Indigenous at Lethbridge College and, and we, you know, we'll respond, get something set up. Um, you know, we offer um, pouch making, you know, those types of uh, experiential learning opportunities for our, our community here on campus. You know, you can come and learn how to do some sewing, moccasin making for our students as well. Um, you know, the, we, we do facilitate uh, um, those um, opportunities for um, centers as well. So um, then, then, you know, you know, just come and ask us. I mean, there's, there's, and then there's modern context too. You know, like I mean, I talked about it at the academic town hall on the 14th of February, and you know, the indigenous business is, you know, four billion dollar industry here in Canada, and you know, there's got to be ways for everybody to mutually benefit, and and there is. 
Um, so it, it could be an entire course, you know, mutual development of capacity in First Nations communities. I mean, there's there's a lot of lot of opportunities. Um, it could fuel this Canadian economy to a whole new level. I mean, um, but yeah, that that I you know. Come and ask us. We we have our cultural support program. We have our grandparents. We can also bring in um, knowledge holders that are of a specific field that you may know, and and come in. You know, we'll get get them set up. Yeah. It sounds like just even to to come and start a conversation. Mm-hmm. Relationship is huge. Yes. I think that's a good point, Lowell, and I think that I um. I start with that is the relationship. And so to me, you know, I think in the academic context and I've spent some time in academics and and Lowell has as well. When you meet someone, it's often like, what's the opportunity to collaborate? What can you do for me? You know, and, and then there's sort of that push, like we need to be helping each other and this needs to get right into like the deliverables that we'll have at the end of this meeting. And it feels so much like just a a take, you know, they show up and they came out with their hands like this. And it's like, I want to take this from you. And, and so, you know, the thing I guess I, I love about our college and about our neat stuffy gathering place and others is it's, it's a community. I've always felt a sense of community at indigenous services and at the neat stuffy gathering place. And, and, um, I'm white spoiler alert. Okay. (laughs) I'm white, right? But it was never like, what are you doing here? This isn't your place. It was always just like, welcome, come in, have a seat. We have snacks. So-and-so brought coffee. Peter's going to come by later to talk about this. Stay as long as you'd like. Everyone's welcome there. And uh, I really appreciate that, you know, and I think that Lowell, um, you know, he's this big, scary guy. No, I'm kidding. He's he's very <laughs> friendly, right? And and so that's, I guess, you asked what would be my advice to faculty is I don't know. I don't know why you would feel any hesitation to just go say hello. Just, and, and, and Lowell will even teach us, you know, we, we could say hello in, in the Blackfoot language. That's, you know, posted up around the college. It's the official greeting of the city of Lethbridge. You know, you're, you're connected to this culture already very quickly. And so it, I think it just feels natural to, to say like, hey, I teach this course and I know Lowell's done this for my colleagues um, because they say I'm teaching an environmental chemistry course. And I, I, you know, Kirby's got it easy. He gets to stand there and talk about plants and animals and, and give the names and the connections. And he gets to have Peter come in and stand there and tell these beautiful flowing stories with dynamic characters and morals and lessons how do I spin that into environmental science, you know, into an environmental chemistry course or into, you know, maybe a criminal justice course or any sort of course. And I think, you know, where Lowell's really successful here and his team at Indigenous Services is that, and it's not just the people who work here. I'm sure Lowell has, you know, family and elders and others he talks to because it is a community there, right? And and they say like, oh, well, there's this connection here. And, And so maybe that instructor would have never seen it. And maybe if somebody asked me, I would have never seen it, right? But Lowell, because he's trained in a different, well, he, he's really in, a, in an ideal position. He's got both, as you said, the word braiding. He's got this, all that traditional ecological knowledge and the indigenous perspective and the Western science. So 
he can see a way to make connections and explain things that I just wish I could. I'll, I'll never see it in that way or to the same extent. And so it's, it's, it's just a conversation though. Right, Lowell? You yeah. know, you start, they, they say, Hey, Lowell, how about this? And he says, Oh, I got some ideas. And you know, if, if I was going to make a big request of Lowell or an elder, I would probably, you know, offer some tobacco first and, and express that, you know, sincerity in, in wanting to incorporate this content. Um, I wouldn't make demands. And, and I jokingly say, so I teach a, a course in the fourth year of our ecosystem management degree called integrated resource management. And part of that is we included a first nations connection and they say, I've got these questions. Who do I go ask? Who do I talk to? And I said, well, you know, we have a couple on campus elders and I, I talked to Peter, many Puka lots, but you should know sometimes it takes me a month to get the answer to the question that I went there because we go lots of other places and I learn lots along the way, but it's not just as transactional. You can't just walk up and be like, Hey, this is your job. Tell me this thing so I can walk away. And that is very much a culture that I think a lot of us have. And it does not jive with traditional first nations communities. They just don't see it like that. And if you were to do that, you know, they would be rude or they, well, talk to so-and-so and you might just get sort of sent, sent on a runabout. And it's just a lack of comprehension. But I mean, it's with any culture, right? You, we have a, an academic culture. And so in the same way that if someone came to you and said, give me your whole course, I want to see the whole thing, just hand it over to me. I want to read it. You'd go like, well, no, if you want to participate in the course, you can enroll in it or you can audit the course. And you know, it's, it's, it's that you have a way of accessing that data. And so I think for people to just go to an elder and say, like, tell me everything I want it, you know, it's not fair that, that an elder has a PhD worth of knowledge, sometimes several. And for you to not acknowledge how much information they're carrying and ask for it respectfully is, is I think quite rude. And as, as Lowell said, you know, he'll do the hard work for you. This, this is the coordinator, the bridge between that, suite of you know indigenous knowledge keepers and and traditional knowledge keepers and the kind of our college and and indigenous services is the the bridge between the two and so you know don't try and swim the river if you can take the bridge right that's really wonderful and and you've both offered some some great suggestions for um instructors who might be listening can you talk now? I'm really excited to hear about some of the projects. You you mentioned them a little bit earlier, um, some of the summer projects and other projects that you guys have worked on together. Well, a couple of things. Yeah, the, the summer camps, the Ecosystem Explorers Camp is uh, something formalized that we now have basically a a day in the in that camp. And further, you know, we had from the Fit for Life Center, what would we call those flashcards? Um, That's kind of what they were. Yeah. Blackfoot language Sure, yeah, Blackfoot yeah. language flashcards with animals and the, you know, common name and then the indigenous name and then say I'm a beaver. Okay. Gisestaki. My role here to do the activity is I'm going to slap my tail, you know, an arm on the ground or I'm going to swim. And so this, this age group was eight to 13, the 13 year olds, especially the 13 year old girls, they were a little beyond the wanting to do some of that. But you know, our, our eight and nine year old kids, they were thrilled to embody this animal. And then we're out there, you know, it's not just in a classroom. We're standing on the edge of the coulee and we said, well, where would we find a beaver on the land? Okay. Where do beaver like to live? Well, they have one foot in water and one foot on land. Well, let's go find some 
places where water meets land. And on the walk down the hill, you know, Lowell's given additional context and some of the other animals. And imagine this place at a time when the bison, they need roamed free here, what that would look like. And you would maybe come to a coulee like this to hunt them in the winter because they're going to spend time in here. And they're just, in my mind, seeing this area that it's six mile coulee. It's right there. Many of these kids have probably been there dozens of times. And they've walked over that same ground, but they didn't have that context and that sort of uh, imagination put on them. And and you just saw their eyes light up with excitement about what this place used to be and still what it is now. You know, William, uh, it, and I'll talk about this in a minute, the Iskisnip, the, the Blackfoot Ways of Knowing Plant Walk, but it it's not what used to be here. It's still here, right? The Blackfoot people are still here. They didn't go anywhere. Uh, and, and they still have all that knowledge and so much excitement and enthusiasm about the land and about these teachings to share. So anyway, on that walk, we'd go down to the Creek and then I, I'm a beaver researcher, um, primarily and working with beaver. And so I get into talking about my, um, you know, riparian habitat formation and aquatic ecology and the way that beaver water recharges the floodplain. And then Lowell can talk about the significance of the beaver bundle and the importance of this animal to the peoples. And we're just really giving an opportunity for sort of this much more holistic understanding of concepts and, and learning from place, you know, sitting around this table, I can tell you the same story, but you can't feel the the water on your feet and you can't pick up a stick that the beaver chewed and you don't see where the water extended into the floodplain. And up to that point, it's green and beyond that point, it's brown. You know, those, those connections that come with learning from place. And so that those exploration camps give us that opportunity. And, and it's nothing that you know, my colleagues aren't already doing, we run a week, you know, some courses a week, some courses longer field experiences every year. And, and our students are somewhat remiss because their final exam period is March 28th to the 1st of April this year. And everyone else gets three more weeks of learning and studying before their exams. And, and so, you know, that, that is what it is, but then we take them into the field and all these lessons that we were trying to make stick in a classroom, you know, that we're based on what's going out on the land. When you're standing in it, it's just so much easier to teach and to show those connections. And okay, now see how, you know, on this slope, there's more vegetation than on that slope. What factors do you think differ between those two? Well, what about the sunlight? Right. And so what does sunlight do? And, and again, it's just all of that. You see it in the context. And then I think, you know, from, from my side of things, when you can have a, a guy like Lowell or, or, you know, Peter or, or uh, you know, others, Harley, they can add in that extra layer of cultural context, ecological context, further significance of that location. And it, it just, to me, it all increases student buy-in because then now they're not just, you know, out back of Lethbridge College learning about something on some little field trip. They're, they're in a place where ecology is alive and history is alive and culture is alive and, and all these things are operating at once and they're standing there. And, and in fact, you know, Six Mile Coulee is great because if you get just a little over the hill, you can almost forget you're in a city. And so we're, we're really quite fortunate here to have that uh, that opportunity to go out there and learn. Those are our future leaders, you know, those those, those children it. camps. Hey? And you, you never know, you know, like that's they could be a preservationist that, you know, works with indigenous people. And, and then, you know, that and goes back to relationship building again, you know, like, I mean. Indigenous people are very, very good at building relationships mm -hmm. because, I mean, it's just the nature of 
our communities. But, you know, moving into, you know, some of the other projects we worked on, you know, you you had brought up Bistunit, the, the, the Cooley Walk for um, Lethbridge College. And, you know, we had uh, commissioned out um, William Singer to, to uh, develop a project for us and, and, and identify some of the cultural resources that, you know, the, the Cooley had provided for the Blackfoot people. And... Um, we're looking at primarily the the plant resources, and um, you know we we had you know the the um, the plants that we we utilized in the coolie, and and we had identified them in the Blackfoot context, found their uses, and then you know Kirby came in and provided us with the scientific names and and the English names because at some point some some of these plants you know we don't we don't even know the the English name to them, and that. And yeah. Kirby helped us find those names and, and identified the must for us in the Western context, and it was um, exciting. And and you know some of the some of the harder to plant find plants like the moss, you know the mm -hmm. wild turnip. turnip yeah. yeah, well those were you know found right here, readily available. And I was telling Kirby, you know, you harvest a bunch of those, you'll be a very popular man amongst the Blackfoot people because <laughs> you know we used them in some of our ceremonies, and you know a lot of guys have a tough time trying to find them, but Kirby knows what he's looking for and he's like yeah. to some extent when we went looking for him of course we couldn't find him but this year we said we'll be smart when they're blooming we'll go stick pin flags <laughs> so that later when we do our summer council oh there's that orange flag over there yeah when lowell gives me opportunities to help further connect my environmental science to these you know language revitalization or language maintenance and other things i'm like well yeah that's a no-brainer like we have to do that that's a great idea and so I, I feel very fortunate to be given those opportunities and, and I, to be fair, also go looking for them, you know, as much as I can. Um, I really love all that you've mentioned as far as the forming the relationships and all the different connections. I think that um, it's been very, very interesting. And we will mention the Cooley Walk as well in our show notes because that is um, an excellent opportunity for anyone who hasn't been out there and hasn't had a chance to see the Cooley Walk. Um, and even if you have, it's wonderful to, to go back and look at it again. It's fantastic. So I just would like to really thank you both, uh, Lowell and Kirby, for um, having this great conversation today and sharing all that you have been doing and all of your knowledge. Oh, not even close to all. But thank you very much. This guy's a, a wealth. Thanks. Thanks, Donna. You know, and then, you know, going back, you know, to the Cooley Walk, you know, me and Donna are working on the virtualization yeah. of the Cooley Walk. So that's an exciting opportunity that's that's coming up for our community here on campus. So what Lowell's telling me is he's going to put me out of a job because <laughs> he can do it virtual and I don't need to stand there and walk students through those coolies. We'll, we'll preserve you for time <laughs> and more. Thank you. Yeah, good point. I'll be, I'll be virtualized. You. Yeah. Well, and the virtual the virtual coolie walk will be great for our distance students too mm -hmm. and yeah, people who aren't local so they can find out more about the the local land and community. It, it is wonderful and and I will take this opportunity to make one more plug. And that's if anyone's listening, they have children that you think would be interested. You know, we're, we're trying now to set that weeks of the summer exploration camp up for kind of elementary age, junior high age and high school age with slightly different, you know, uh, learning experiences offered and durations and time spent out doing things. So definitely, you know, we're, we're trying to get the word out on that a little more. We're formalizing those camps. I think that's a 
a really good opportunity to to participate in that. And thanks again for, you know, Lowell and, and yourself, Don, and our excellent sound engineer, Ryan, being here to make sure this thing flows smoothly. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, what did Lowell teach us the other day? Ixacopy. It's all good. It's very Ixacopy. good. Ixacopy. Yeah, That's Ixacopy. right. With the hand. With the hand. That's it. This episode featured Donna McLaughlin as host and Kirby England and Lowell Yellowhorn as guests. Jordana Gagnon was our producer. Ryan Robinson was our sound technician and editor. Thank you also to Daryl Benebeck, Joel Godry, Kelsey Jansen, Tyler Wall, and Jamin Heller for their ongoing support and expertise. Our podcast is funded by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation and recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. For more information and inspiration, check out learninginnovation.ca. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and follow us on your chosen platform. Thanks for listening and take care.